Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Louis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. 2018 was a memorable year in California education. It was the last year under Governor Jerry Brown, who is leaving office having met his goal of fully funding his signature law, the local control funding formula that reshaped California finance and governance. There were also major reforms at the California community colleges and the California State University system through the introduction of landmark laws and reforms to transform the system of remedial education that has proved to be not that effective in getting young people access to our public system of higher education. Certainly not yet, anyway. We also all participated, to one extent or another, in the election of a new governor, a new superintendent of public instruction, following an expensive, divisive, and often bitter campaign. It was. For teachers' unions, it was the year that saw the U.S. Supreme Court chip away their strength by ruling all teachers and other public employees don't have to pay fees to the unions that represent them. And then the year ended in tragedy, as we know, with a wildfire that all but wiped out the town of Paradise, displacing families and destroying all but one of its schools. We look back at the year and at some of the important events and issues that we covered here at EdSource. John, you may recall in March, students of all ages were inspired by the activism of those who survived the mass shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. They walked out of class and staged a variety of protests to demand stricter gun control laws. Many of the survivors of that massacre came to California. They were active in the campaigns here during the fall and uh, really were a national presence and may have played a role in the large voter turnout of young people in the fall elections. Yeah, that was one of the big questions that we had, was whether or not this was a one-shot protest or whether or not, in fact, students would register to vote and turn out in November. And certainly it appears, based on the results of congressional elections in California, perhaps it had an impact. We don't have actual figures for California yet, but nationally it was a record turnout, uh, larger than any youth turnout since 1982. You know, looking back, the election in November really dominated the news, and it was largely, as we mentioned, because it was such an expensive and divisive campaign. You mean the race for superintendent for public instruction? Yes, it but was. But, John, before you go there, because just to dial it back a little bit to the governor's race, one of the surprising things, and I don't think we could have predicted this at the beginning of the year, that the governor's race became kind of a proxy race around charter schools that very wealthy charter backers decided kind of late in the day to put in tens of millions of dollars to support former L.A. Mayor Antonio Viragosa. They hoped that somehow, with a big push at the end, they could get him into the number two spot, and then perhaps in November he could pull in some Republican votes and somehow win in November. And very harsh criticisms of Gavin Newsom as kind of being an enemy of the charter school movement, which really wasn't accurate. He's been a supporter of charter schools, but sort of raised some questions about whether there should be more oversight and that he'd support legislation that Governor Brown has vetoed in the past around, around requiring more oversight and meeting the state's open meetings laws and so on. It came uh, pretty nasty. Well, you know, that gets to one of my predictions that 
didn't happen. As you know, every year I make predictions for the year about this time of year. And one of my predictions was that CTA, the California Teachers Association, was going to spend a lot more money on the governor's race trying to stop Villaraigosa than it would care about the state superintendent race. Well, as it turned out, Villaraigosa did not make the general election in November, so CTA had an awful lot of money to put into the state superintendent's race. And in fact, it needed every dollar because wealthy supporters of charter schools were putting a lot of money behind Marshall Tuck. And that just consumed the news for a couple months this fall. And, you know, I don't know looking ahead how much difference it would have made because I think that either one of them were kind of similar in many respects. So now we have Tony Thurman coming up to be the state superintendent. We'll see how he does. You know, a remarkable aspect of the election was how Tony Thurman came from behind He was behind on election night, and uh, in all those uncounted ballots, which now seem to be part of the California electoral landscape, four million uncounted ballots at the end of uh, election night, Tony Thurman won a big chunk of those and ended up being the winner with almost 200,000 votes. As long as we're talking predictions, I guess I have to come clean here and be humble. You're talking about from last year. From last year. I'm I'm impressed. You're willing to... Fess up your errors of judgment. I do because readers would do it for me if I didn't. I'm going to be writing about 2019 in another week, but I just wanted to go some of the predictions that I made a year ago and whether or not they happened. I must say, even under today's standards of great inflation, I didn't do all that well. I did say, however, that Governor Brown would fully fund the local control funding formula, which he will do. It only raises funding to pre-recession levels for some districts, but he did make that commitment. At the same time, I, I said I doubted he'd spend any additional revenue on education. And as he, you know, he went out of office spending a lot of money on residencies for teachers and for money for to so-called systems of support to help districts improve. None of this I thought he would do. Also, he also bumped up funding for higher ed. I mean, it was a very strong backer financially for community colleges. And also UC and CSU got more money, although not as much as they would have liked. Well, that might be one of the last few good years for a while, at least for Proposition 98 to fund schools. We are heading into an, a period probably that's just going to be cost of living increases. So Governor Brown went out. He helped raise taxes back in 2012, I believe. And we've had some really good growth years in education. He's going out as a, on top. Just one other prediction I made that actually didn't happen. I predicted that the State Board of Education would sue the Trump administration after it rejected California's education plan for the Every Student Succeeds Act. But sure enough, there was a lot of shadow boxing. But in the end, after much discussion and a lot of stories written, Washington approved the plan and California adopted it. And there we have it. I did also want to note that one issue that we covered was the issue of homelessness amongst kids in California, which is on the rise. Not a surprise to all of us who live in urban areas where we see the homeless encampments all around us. Very disturbing, particularly at this time of the year. But we actually did. Carolyn Jones, one of our reporters, went into rural areas and found very high rates of homelessness there among children and families. So that's an ongoing challenge for schools and for the entire state. You know, a lot of stories we write are about the events of the moment, but Ed Soros did some terrific coverage this past year. Our colleagues wrote about homeless situation with a map of 
the homeless rates in every school in the state. We wrote about lead in school water. We wrote about uh, restorative justice programs that help reduce suspension rates. I agree with you, John. So, you know, thanks to my colleagues who really day in and day out are tracking these issues. We're going to leave 2018 behind now. And uh, next, we're going to hear from EdSource reporter Zadie Stavely about regulations proposed by the Trump administration that will make it more difficult for legal immigrants to become permanent residents of the United States. Many of you have been very generous in supporting EdSource. We have a couple of days left. For those of you who would like to contribute to our news match, our annual fundraising drive, where whatever you contribute is worth twice as much to EdSource. Please go to our website, and it's very easy to make a contribution. Whatever you're able to contribute, we would very much appreciate. administration is trying to put in place regulations that would make it more likely that immigrants applying for green cards will be declared a public charge because of their use of a range of taxpayer-funded benefits. They could then be denied a green card on that basis. Our reporter Zadie Stavely has been looking into this hugely controversial proposal and recently did a story on the issue for Public Radio International's The World. Let's hear the story and then we'll talk with Zadie. Maria is from Mexico, lives in Sacramento, and has a green card. Her husband and two young daughters are U.S. citizens. The little one is just three months old. Maria coos at her in Spanish and English. Big chicks. It's cute chicks. This is my chicks. <laughs> After giving birth, Maria had trouble breastfeeding. So Maria's pediatrician recommended formula and that Maria apply for WIC, shorthand for a federal program that helps low-income moms and kids with breastfeeding and healthy groceries. Maria knew WIC could help. She used it with her first daughter. But this time, Maria didn't seek out the help because she's afraid. She asked not to use her full name, fearing it could jeopardize her legal status. I am afraid that I won't be able to stay in this country. Maria already has a green card, and WIC isn't one of the benefits the Trump administration's proposal would limit. But the proposal has gone through several versions, enough for Maria to think it could risk her status here somehow. So Maria also canceled her older daughter's Medicaid. Now the kindergartner is uninsured. I fear that that at some point they change something else and I will be deported. How can I know the future? (laughs) How How can I be sure that it's not going to be a problem? The government says the changes keep taxpayers from paying for some immigrants who use some public benefits and that immigrants shouldn't panic and drop out of programs. Here's what U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Director Francis Cisna said recently. There should not be a mad rush to unsubscribe uh, from all benefits. Uh, That is unwarranted, I think. It's very clearly laid out what we're going to look at and what we're not going to look at. Officials also say the changes would make it harder for people to get green cards if they're likely to use or have used certain benefits like Medicaid, food stamps, or public housing. Benefits used by children can't be counted against their parents. But earlier versions of the regulations said they would, and that's created fear. 
We've heard that people have asked to return their WIC vouchers or return their breast pumps and um, just be sort of purged from the computer system entirely. Sarah Diaz helps run a nonprofit that promotes the WIC program in California. She's heard a lot of stories like this lately. So have staff at other agencies that serve low-income immigrant families in California. A grandmother in San Francisco asked a clinic to purge all of her grandkids' medical records. A teenage mom canceled WIC just before giving birth. A parent stopped seeking help for their toddler with autism. The family then just one day called up and said, we want to stop the process. We don't want to be, we don't want to, to go further. Paige Tomlin is with First Five, an agency in California that helps families with small children. And one of the reasons that they gave was they're just their concern about their family's immigration status. In the 1990s, when the federal government blocked many immigrants from public benefits, one quarter of children with an immigrant parent disenrolled from Medicaid, even though most of the kids were still eligible. People who work with kids worry this could happen again, and that would mean hundreds of thousands of kids could be affected. At a school health clinic in Oakland, young students stop in for appointments with nurses and doctors, and also for oatmeal. Hi, sweetheart, can I help you? Your stomach hurts. And let me see your text. And what do you think that's going on? Did you have breakfast this morning? No. You don't have breakfast this morning? Do you want an oatmeal? So, for example, if someone's not eating breakfast and they're hungry all day, they're not going to be able to study as well. They're not going to succeed as well in school. Karen Gersten Rothenberg, a family nurse practitioner here, says school-based clinics provide services even if students don't have health insurance. But she's still concerned. We're able to pick up really early on signs of depression. So I really worry that if, if uh, families are afraid to seek care for their students, that those kinds of things, which are a lot more silent, will also go undetected and untreated. Gersten Rothenberg and others are submitting public comments to oppose the government's proposal. The new rules won't take effect until the government responds to the comments, which could take months. For The World, Zadie Stavely, Oakland, California. So thanks, Zadie. That was a terrific piece. Tell us, uh, have there been any developments since that piece aired a couple of weeks ago? Well, first and foremost, Louis, the comment period closed on December 10th, and about 216,000 comments were turned in. That's a lot. Do we know which side of the issue? Um, We know that based on um, a sample from the campaign that was opposed, they believe that most of the comments were opposing the rule. Well, do we know how many of these came from California? No, I don't know that. I do know that many people in California were opposed, um, including many school administrators and school and educators, uh, as well as doctors from all over the country, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and many leading organizations of health, education, people who work with these families. You mentioned school administrators in California, and I understand that the School Administrators Association asked local school districts to send in comments or, I guess, opposing these regs. So why would schools be concerned about this? Well, they're concerned that students are going to come to school hungry, that students are going to come to school sick, that they're going to miss school and that they're going to do worse in school because of not having enough food, housing, or uh, medical care. One of the issues that I noticed in the, in the comment that was from the School Superintendents Association, which is a national association, 
was that school administrators, principals all over the country had tried to convince families that they should continue to have their children receive Medicaid benefits at school in school-based health centers, that those benefits were not affected by the rule and that the rule is not in effect. And they were not able to convince those families that that is what they had heard from principals all over the country. So what's the timeline now for the rule? Well, now the government, the federal administration, has to look over all the comments, and they're supposed to review and respond to all the comments. And that process normally takes at least six months and up to a year uh, or more. But there is some speculation that that process may be sped up in this case. Just have to ask you, the House of Representatives, as everyone is listening knows, is going to be in Democratic hands very shortly. Would this make any a difference to the potential imposition of these regs? Well, the regulations aren't legislation passed by Congress. They're more regulations that are coming from the executive branch. So I don't know if Congress would do something. I haven't heard anything from representatives regarding that. But I could see how at least this issue would be could become a major issue on Capitol Hill and that the Democrats could oppose it at least in the halls of Congress, and that could have some impact potentially on how this is rolled out or whether it's rolled out. We'll have to see what they do. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lewis, and thank you, John. That was Aidy Stavely reporting about the public charge regulations that are in the works and may be implemented by the Trump administration at some point during the coming year. And that just about wraps it up for this week in California education, not only for this week, but for the year. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. Our producer is Shuka Kalatari. Thank you, Shuka, for all your work throughout the year. You're welcome. And our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. We'll also have music from Ed Source's own Justin Allen. If you like what you hear, write us a review on iTunes. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald wishing you a happy new year. Likewise from me, happy new year to you all. Happy new year.